0: Here we go, here we go. All right, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Let's pray and let's go. Lord God, Heavenly Father, give us, we pray, your Holy Spirit, that we may hear and accept your word, that we may embrace your sacraments, and that being claimed by you and renewed in life, we live for you and you only now and hereafter through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Sounds really loud. Is it really loud? Yeah. Is it too loud? It's not too loud. I got double things. As soon as we get things continue to sort of blow up. So as soon as we get uh, as soon as we get everything back to normal, life's going to be great. So you can I can sort of hear you, but uh, not exactly. So anyway, it's nice to see you all. Thanks for coming out. Um, this week was better than last week and last week was better than the week before. One of the really generous things that's happened is the return of children. So I just want to compliment you on being so patient this morning. I know kids were running wild, and it felt fabulous, right? Uh, usually they, they sort of hang in the back, but, you know, they haven't seen their friends either, right? They haven't been together and talked. They haven't had their masks off. They haven't had the chance to come back. So thanks for being very, very patient. I know that at some point somebody's going to go down with a broken hip and a hot cup of coffee. I'm just hoping it's not me. But otherwise, you know... The, the 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 rules are still enforced. No stitches, no crying. But other than that, you know, no stitches, no crying. Everything else is so. Continue to bear with them. Um, they express their excitement in different ways, but it's so it adds everything. And church was like that too at the early service. You know, just to have kids back, it's such a, it's such a different feeling. So that was very very nice. I know that um, you know you're learning to come back to church. It's the the pace is a little faster than I anticipated. I'm very happy about that. Uh, I've talked to people who travel for a living and they've talked about how they forget to pack things or they leave a laptop in a hotel room or they don't remember how long to get to their flights in advance and all this kind of stuff. I've observed this also in coming back to church. People, You're sort of getting your rhythm back and that's that's really, really nice. It's going to take us a little while, but it's very promising. And as we do that, the whole point of this is for us to live again like the church, especially in a world that doesn't look or live like the church at all. So a little bit of warning just to start. The things that we're talking about, this always happens in new members when we talk about um, Matthew 18 and going to somebody when they sinned against you. You know, that's really, that's church information or that's church practice. People often, the first place they think about is the person who's annoying them at work. Uh, The same thing for all the things that we're talking about here. I think first as church, we need to put this back into practice. This is not the stuff that's going to play easily or well in a broader political atmosphere, especially one that's a bit charged up. And so, uh, you know, let's just work on, you know, getting things right here. And then, of course, things move out into your life. But it's much more complicated to live your Christian life in a non-Christian world than it is to live your Christian life inside the church. At least it should be that way. That should be non-negotiable for us. We should be able to live as Christians in a church and then in regard to other Christians um, much more easily than we just sort of make it through the world. So patience and hopefully it'll all it'll all come to us. Okay. so just to start, I just want to observe that um, anger has been used as a strategy. Now, this is not a new strategy. I mean, our brain's. There actually is something in our brains that we run. Anger pushes us toward conflict. It's very interesting if you look at brain studies. People, if you get people angry, you know, they rush into battle. And so it is a, you know, biologically, you know, technically, strategically, anger is a great idea if you don't mind having a war, if you don't mind destroying people in your path. But as a strategy for a church or a nation or a family, uh, it 's a really bad strategy because anger is self destructive I know that it 's been you know it 's been legitimized, and I know that it 's been studied and i know it 's been used i mean one of the one of the ways that you can you can uh, move people politically is to make them angry about the things that they don 't have or that other people have or where they 've been slighted as the church, we have a couple of responsibilities here one is we should really try to pay attention to where people feel like they 've been slighted. And we should, you know, just under natural law or under conscience or under the Ten Commandments, we should be careful about respecting the dignity of other persons. That said, you know, theology is principle and politics is strategy. And we have to be careful of importing strategies that identify people as enemies, since Jesus doesn't have any enemies. And since Jesus goes to bed at night and prays for those who would think that they are his enemies, right? So Jesus doesn't have enemies, so you don't have enemies, and I don't have enemies. And it's very tough uh, to maintain anger if you don't have enemies, right? Which, of course, is the whole point. So uh, just kind of we're we're relearning to be human in a way. We always are doing that in church, of course, but the last 20 months or 21 months have been a special test of that. And even in the church, we've absorbed... A lot of worldly ways of doing business. And part I want to do is want to try to displace that in you again. I want to push that out of us by pushing word and sacrament into us. But I want to talk about that in the most practical ways because there's a whole bunch of things that happen when we do this. We don't think it's us. I would never, right? And, um, the other side is we take offense very easily. How dare they? Right? And then we just kind of get sharp elbows and we forget you know, that there are people on the other end of our words or on the other end of our elbows. They're, they're real people with real concerns. They're people for whom Christ died. They're people with full dignity as human beings. And we're meant to amplify that and not to amplify our own anger. And just as a sidebar, um, you if you've had kids, I mean, and you've had to teach them through, you know, getting over their anger, you've said to your kids at some point, you know, that sort of anger doesn't help you think clearly. That sort of anger doesn't have to help you act well. So now why as adults suddenly is anger this great virtue that helps us think clearly and act well? It doesn't at all. And the other thing is internally, spiritually, it's acidic. To hate people, to be angry about people, it really chews you up from the inside because it is of Satan. And that's the important thing. Now, Doubtless you will quote to me, you know um, righteous anger, and without drawing breath, I will um, quote back to you, do not let your't do not let the sun go down on that." So part of what I want to talk about today is how evil rises slowly and lasts only for a brief time. It's not a continual strategy for engagement with yourself, with the Lord or with other people. It's just not. And there's no sort of biblical warrant for any of that. So observing that, we've been changed by the last 20 months in all directions. And kind of noting that we're out of practice. Although this morning, I just have to say, the first service was fabulous. Music was great. People were back. Kids were everywhere. It felt more like old St. John and this is who we are. There were a lot of smiles. There weren't people standing around by themselves. Although we've had a lot of visitors and I'll just encourage you who are always here. I know it's, you know, you want to see your friends, but do sort of just lift your eyes a little bit for people who are new. Every week, you know, there's 10 or 20 new people who are coming in and just sort of being brave enough to walk across the threshold. Take a look at them and try to figure them out a little bit. So there's a, there's sort of a method to this, but it is the method of restoring the Christian walk. And we've all been hard on each other. It's time for second chances, right? And that's, you know, the liturgy is one long second chance. We kneel down and say, hey, we got that wrong um, from the depths of my heart. And and the Lord says, well, you know, I died for that one, and on we go. So um, this is what we're meant for, and that's to look nothing like the world. And still then, and you know this from being together for so long, you do want to live it out in the world, but... You know, wise the serpents, innocent as doves. So um, that's where we're going and, and trying to give it. And I want to sort of explore with you how the scriptures talk about that. So at number one, you know, this is what happens to us. <clears throat> we get idols and then our idols blow us up. They, they blow up our relationship with God. They smash our relationship with other people. And, of course, we're only as good as our idols and we think we're locked, we're locked together. And suddenly we start only acting for ourselves and we talked about how the word devil means to separate and divide and folks just get pushed apart and since, you know, the sermon this morning, when we're meant to be together, imitating the Holy Trinity, when we get pushed apart, when we're alone, when we feel unloved, that's when we despair, that's when we suffer, that's when we get angry, that's when we do damage, that's when we destroy other people and that's when we destroy ourselves. And you can look all around at people who are cultivating that. That's not us. So we don't we don't cultivate anchor as a virtue or as a strategy. And kind of down the way, Jesus comes into this calm and true and holy and merciful and beautiful and healing and hopeful. Even think about something like, just think about the music this morning. Just think about how healing that is to have people sing to you like that. Um, It's performed very, very well. The people are very, very good people. There's a joy and a beauty and an order to it. It just sort of, you know, comes out of the balcony and floods the landscape. I mean, that is a mark of divine things, where that gift is given to people, and it makes you feel like everything is all right. So um, that's the way that things uh, push us back toward the Lord. And then this last quote at the bottom uh, about idols, really. When we are wanting something other than what God wants us to be, so if we're trying to be like the world, if we're trying to be um, like our idol, if we're trying to be what we think we should be, when we're trying to be something other than what God wants us to be, we must be wanting, in fact, what will not make us happy. And, of course, that's explained so much of the sadness in the world. So all the way to point number three, um, how do we go forward? Uh, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks. It's very awkward. Monday Thursday is a great example of how awkward it is of of uh, being nothing but given to, right? So the Lord um, takes off his clothes and washes the disciples' feet, and they are squirming. In fact, right to the point of Peter rejecting that, right? You won't touch me like that. And Jesus says, Oof, that's going to go badly for you. You should. Let me do as I see best. And so, um, we, we talk a little bit about how awkward that is and then about how different it is. How the normal sense of love in our culture has now become transactional. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. But the notion of selfless love and even the explicit notion of forgiveness is now, um, off base. If you talk to people about forgiveness, is is, is seen as an anti-virtue now. It's a sign of weakness. Uh, we'll see how long that'll play out. Because of course, uh, if you keep destroying people around you, pretty soon you're left all by yourself. And of course, we're seeing this politically as well, right? Like, when does it stop? When when everybody everybody has something just waiting to be discovered. And if everybody's dead when it gets discovered, pretty soon we're all dead, right? It's a, it's a mindless exercise of power to try to make yourself better than everybody else, exposing other people before you're exposed. Right? That's the worst side of the transactionalism. But just the whole notion of I live in a relationship, in a marriage, in a friendship. Um, you've all had relationships like this. Take, take take a friendship where you only get something if you give something, where nobody thinks of you first. You know, This is horrible kind of stuff. Um, it's not real. It's 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 not the stuff of love. Love is not a transaction. Love is this idea, this um, impulse to, uh, you know, one of my favorite lines ever from a movie, from the Remains of the Day, where the butler says, the perfect servant knows what his master needs before his master needs it. Right? So you're in a relationship with a spouse or a friend or a child, and you know what they need even before they need it. And you provide that in the best possible way. That's agape love. That is love from the heart of, 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 of God. The God who creates because then there's a, he creates you because there's one more person in the universe to love. And he redeems you because heaven would be a poorer place if you weren't there. And so this, this constant reach and salve this healing and blessing and embrace where you're never alone and you're never unloved and you're always part and never left out, always included and listened to and valued and given the dignity with which you were meant to live, right? That just scratches the surface of what it means when we talk about divine love. And that's partly why the world is so now, um, how quickly we've moved in 15 years from, People were sort of interested about Christianity to being kind of tolerant to Christianity as opposed to identifying Christianity as an enemy. It's moved um, very, very quickly. That doesn't mean you have to move because, and I'm sort of halfway down under number three, though it's strange to the world, this love is also very compelling. right? And the church, and I, I spend a lot of time at cocktail parties apologizing for the sins of the church. It's almost always the first block to anything else I want to talk about or be or say or do. Because the church has done so much damage to so many people in so many ways, you know? And that's really an anti-witness to Jesus' love. But, that being said, the church has also done a tremendous amount of good. And Jesus himself is very compelling because at bottom, what all we... What all of us need is to be loved. And so if we can get out of the way and let Jesus have a, have a go at us, um, if we can, as Paul says, be imitators of Christ, then I think, um, you know, the church still has a chance. We'll, we'll see what happens. You shouldn't be so concerned about it. You know, now, you know, the latest string of emails I got this week was about, you know, and I get these every time anything big happens, you know, you, the vaccination being the mark of the beast and blah, blah, right? So, um, you've been vaccinated and marked, and sorry for you. So, uh, you know, but this is the sort of thing where you kind of go, you know, the people think it's the end of the world. So the mark of the beast, the end of the world, I get, you know, you kind of want to go, you know, that as the barbarians overran Rome, Augustine on his deathbed, 408 or something like that, thought the world was ending. You know, Luther, under death sentence from both Pope and Emperor, He too thought, this is it, the world's over. If you think the world's over, let me just get on the other side of that bet. If you're using DraftKings, let me know because I will give you a point spread in centuries and I'll take the other side, okay? Because it's not even close. You think this is bad? This is not even close, right? Just go talk to some people who lived in Russia or the Eastern Bloc or Haiti or Venezuela. It's not even close doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention. It just means keep your powder dry, okay? So, um, you know, from then till now, what are are we going to do? Well, we're questing. We're trying to make it through in the way of love. And love, you know, very simple definitions of love. To love is to do good. Or to love is to apply mercy wherever there's misery. That's a very easy definition of the Christian life, right? Your job is to apply mercy, divine mercy, where there's misery. That's the sort of thing that would make Jesus attractive again. It's what made Jesus himself attractive. So all this worry about, you know, this is going to be the end of us and nobody will ever come back to church and how are we going to live? You know, my very simple answer to that is live. Right? And let the chips fall where they fall. You're not responsible for any of that. You're not responsible for the mark of the beast. You're not responsible for the end of the world. Frankly, you're not responsible for the idiocy that the church has done in past centuries or even, you know, nearby, although we suffer from it, and you can certainly apologize for that and say never should have happened. But if we would all just live our lives in imitation of divine love as a community like the Holy Trinity, then the chips fall where they fall. Right? They fall where they fall. So just, you know, you know, Uh, Now, I was going to tell you a story about my Aunt Mary, but this is all recorded, and, you know, God rest her soul. So let's just move on, okay? But she did think when she got that Sears credit card with a 666 that she'd been marked, and that was the end of her. So, but never mind. I'm right at the bottom of the second page, right? It's so easy to describe this quest that we're on. And I I can give you, you know, a couple of verses like this, but like you know, you gotta learn one verse of scripture, and then pretty much the rest falls out. Right? Let love be genuine. Don't touch evil, touch good. There it is. That's the whole Christian life. Love people, how do you do that? Touch good, don't touch evil. That's really about all you need to know. That's it. In love, touch good, the Holy Supper, the water and the font. The words of absolution: touch good, don't touch evil. Hate, anger, destruction, idolatry. Touch good, don't touch evil. That's it. That's about. That's all you need to know. And and so when people wondered, you know, what should I do as a Christian, or where should I go, what should I, I'm like, touch good, don't touch evil. Do what you want. So turn the page. Saint Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa. And this then is this kind of thing should be taken seriously. You know. Um, she was kind of a remarkable person, despite the the beating she took from some, you know, kind of um, anti bleeding intellectuals who, who considered her a fraud. I just, I can't even live in that same universe with that sort of talk, right? I remember at the National Prayer Breakfast when she got up and talked in front of all the politicians and the president about how abortion was this great evil, incomprehensible, and why doesn't anybody do about it? It's kind of, it's kind of amazing, right? But here's the answer for you. Um, the current notion of peace is I will identify and destroy my enemies, and then it'll just be us, and then we'll be peaceful. Just by the by, just so you know, when folks get done with their enemies, they're going to turn on you. You should just realize that. That's how purges work. You should re- you know read a little history about you know about Mao. Read a little read a little history about the about, about the Russian Revolution. Just read a little history about what happens when you identify enemies and destroy them. You become expendable, and then you get destroyed, and a new elite is put in place, and things just start over again. This, is, this, this isn't a political statement. This is a human nature statement, right? So you know, on you go. Uh, but then here's the other side of it. You know, works of love are the way to peace. So think about this. How do you calm your child, right? How do you stop a fight, right? How do you um, move away from a difficulty, right? Works of love are the way to peace. And where does love begin? Right in our hearts. A couple of weeks ago, we did the verse about Jesus where he says, out of the heart proceeds all manner of sin, and then he lifts them off, right? The opposite is true, too. Um, Where does good begin? Out of the heart. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has gone through your ear or your skin or your tongue and, uh, banged into your heart and taken it over and then taken a right turn and splashed himself on all the people around you. Right? So divine love comes into you through your skin, through your mouth, through your ear, fills you up and floods the landscape. Whoosh. Right? And when people are loved, that's when they're peaceful. Right? Just think of the story this morning from the sermon. What is, what is the story of Eden? I mean, there are several stories there, but the stories are very easy. What is the story? The Lord floods Eden with love, and he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He floods the landscape with love, and it's only when Adam and Eve take an idol themselves that the relationship is broken and love is refused. And then, when love is refused, everything is no longer at peace. So where where does love begin? Right in our hearts. We know that we've been created for greater things, right? We've been created to love and to be loved. So now, all of that then given some specificity. Immediately, I risk being misunderstood um, because I use the word tolerance, which is a politically charged word. And yet, um, there's the text. What are you going to do? So... uh, Immediately, you know the reaction to this is, um, you know this is tolerance is almost a swear word, right? You'll tolerate anything. Yeah, that's not you know, as Luther says, every word of Christ, every word used of Christ is a new word. So partly what I want to do is reclaim this notion of biblical tolerance, which doesn't mean having such an open mind that all your brains fall out. It actually means understanding what truth is and what purity is. And then, as Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, I pray that they would be one in truth. Now, you still have to believe in a very antiquated notion of something called truth. But the church is actually good at that. Uh, And it's not very painful, actually. You can, um, because if you just listen to other people, they actually do think some things are true. Normally, they think what's true is what they think, right? Otherwise, you have no basis for action. So, you know, what we want to do is, in the way that we've gotten a divine definition of love, we want to find a divine definition of true, and then forward we go, right? And then we sort things, we make distinctions, we make judgments, but not in an angry, destructive way. The judgments you make about other people are God's judgments. And the actions, even painful, that you introduce for other people are meant for their salvation and not for their destruction. Because that's what God intends. It's as when God punishes us, God punishes me and it's very helpful. And I receive that because I know that he doesn't mean to destroy me. It's extraordinarily important that you know that when you suffer or when you're punished, it's only for your good. So just the bottom line is, God does not mean to destroy you. You're God's child. He loves you. He pulls you close. He embraces you. He gives you everything. He wants your best. He does not count you as an enemy, and he does not wish for your destruction. Do you see how, do you see how just absolutely opposite this is of the world that we live in? Right now, the world is... I mean, the only article I read this morning was about winners and losers over the weekend with the politics of Washington, D.C. You know, you kind of read it, and you go... The whole point was we identified the people and we bent them to our will. Right? Now, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's a month away from all, but you just you just see this thing where where you impose your will on another person. And the greatest victory is when they can do nothing when they are your, if you will, slave. Right. And if they won't be your slave, then they have to be destroyed. The church is completely other that, as opposed to you with your children, for example, or a pastor with parishioners, or pick something, right? Where you say, we'll do this, but we won't do that. I know not doing that's going to be really painful for you, but that's the way of Jesus, and we only do things in the way of Jesus. So this definition, this notion of tolerance, and if you need to replace the word with something else so you can sleep at night, okay. But the notion is this idea of Understanding that all the people in this room are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Even though I'll just tell you, there's almost no other circumstance under which I could gather all of you people in one room. Because you are so different. What is there? What is there in you? What Name one thing that would gather you all in one place at what time for the same purpose. It does not exist. Right? That in itself is a form of biblical tolerance, right? Pastors are the worst at this. I mean, pastors are horrible at this, at factions. And, and um, you know, it's a little bit of a problem of being Lutherans because part of what Lutherans do is, hey, when we don't like something, we split. And then we split again. And then we split again. And then we split again. Plenty so you got a Lutheran Senate that's got nine people. You're kind of like, really? Because I don't know that Jesus and that thing about unity and loving each other and that praise the Holy Spirit, that they might all be one. So I'm aiming what I'm aiming at is that we I mean, this is always what I'm aiming at, that we live our lives on God's terms. And this is this is what it looks like. So um, I'm kind of halfway down under number four, starting with Ephesians chapter four. So just, I've just sort of given it to you here. If you want to look it up, you can, but, um, Ephesians four, I think that's starting at verse one. I, Paul, the prisoner for the Lord. So a person who's been bound up, right? Who's suffering the worldly consequences He's in jail. So he's suffering for the faith, right? Um, I, Paul, the prisoner for the Lord, right? And then just below that, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So I'm Paul, and I'd like you all to take a good long walk. Together. And I'd like you to take the way of Jesus. And even as you walk, I'd like you to look like Jesus. This whole notion of matching or imitating that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. So I've turned the page. You should say to yourselves then, what in the world would that look like? Right? Because hey, you think you're good at walking. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, sometimes fabulous, but then, you know, sometimes there's crying in stitches. So, you know, you have to kind of rein the troops in. So what would it look like to walk in the way of Jesus? Verse two, with all humility and gentleness and patience. Now I'm always nervous about this because I'm, I'm worried about this because I'm afraid that a couple of, this can go wrong in a couple of ways. One is, you start to name these virtues that they'll just kind of be pushed to the side like, ah, oh, that's that's too much work or um, there's too much consciousness that has to be given to that. And walking should just be this natural thing. Or I also worry that you would give just earthly definitions to what's a heavenly gift. And if you do that, you just end up looking like everybody else. So at least kind of just bear with a little bit of the word study and try to feel how the virtues are different from the world, okay? So this gentleness is literally can be translated as gentle force. And that not that interesting? This is like, I presume, this is like when, you know, have you ever, you've seen sporting events where somebody dislocates a finger or a shoulder and then somebody comes up to him like this and he goes, hey, let me fix that for you, <clears throat> right? You've seen that? Yeah, I never want to be around that because I know what that do, does to you, right? But then you're like, oh, better. Yeah, that's this, okay? So it's the, like, or, you know, you've seen this where they have guys' fingers on the sideline and suddenly they look away and the trader like, you know, suddenly his fingers, like, snaps back in. You're like, oh, yeah. That's a gentle force, right? You're not trying to pull the finger off. You're just trying to put it back where it belongs. That's it. So when you interact with each other, you're not trying to, you know, just trying to put people back where they belong. Now, be careful here. But just, you know, because you have to presume you know where they belong. But just the notion of gentleness. But sometimes gentleness takes a little bit of oomph, right? That's the word there. So with all gentleness, right? You know, find your way. Find your way with, with gentleness that is divine, right? So you have to discover what Jesus wants. And they need to put it in the action. And that needs to be done with love. But it takes a little force, but it's the kind of force that gives life, right? Okay, then and then the notion of patience. And it's such an interesting word because it can be translated two ways. It can be translated as a long passion, really long passion, or it can also be translated as a really long anger. But if you think that means an enduring anger that goes on for days and days and years and years. You know, like your family at Christmas, those people who won't talk to each other. Oh, maybe that's not your family. I must have confused you for another group. I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, it, it actually means that you would take a long time to get angry. Then your anger would burst for a very short time and only in the way of the gospel. And then it would quickly dissipate. Don't let your son. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So patience means, you know, we call it forbearance, which is a weird English word, Um, or being long-suffering. Now, that actually makes sense. We all know people who, you know, you think of mothers, for example, you know, long-suffering with their children, right? They can wear you out, and you're like, you're just trying to keep that, you're playing the long game here, right? You're just trying to, okay, so being gentle, it's going to take a little force, but in the way of love. You know, being patient. When you apply the force, you're going to make sure you know what you're doing. We talked about Jesus in Mark, how he walks into these diabolical situations where everything is chaotic. And Jesus just kind of walks in the room and he's like, looks around, boom, right? The demon comes out, the epileptic voice stops thrashing around. You know, the dead girl comes back to life, the bleeding woman. She, she stops bleeding for the first time in a dozen years, right? It's kind of like you move in. Yeah, there's going to be some cleanup here. You sort of get a look at things. You move with confidence and surely but gently toward healing the person or restoring them and not toward destroying them, right? And then you bear with one another, which is bearing with is really the word for endurance. This is like running a marathon kind of bearing with. And notice that it's... Um, Bearing with one another. So you have so much jammed into this one phrase. Bearing with one another in love. So first, it is the word agape. So selflessness, right? Then you're going to stick with each other. And we've all done this. We've given up on people. We're like, you know, the worst is you're no son of mine, right? I have a friend disinherited by his father. You just can't talk about it. It's the cruelest thing that could have happened to him. But you notice in the middle, there's this, um, the word echo, where you uh, get the same thing over and over again. And that's what it's meant to do for you. It's meant to reverberate, where you give the gift again and again and again and again. And it's this with each other notion that there, there isn't anything else, Right? We're in it together. My pocket is your pocket. Love your neighbor as yourself. Work a community. This is what we're meant for. It's the Holy Trinity. Live in the image of God. So you have this sense of, you come with this gentleness, and you assess things, and you put the other person on precisely the same level as yourself, and you move toward them with love in order to heal, and you never leave them. Right? You could never say, you're not my son, or you could never say, "Um, you're not my friend. So this is, this is kind of the anti-enemy um, thing. And then you get this note, with each other, right, this back and forth. And then um, eager to maintain this unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? So I kind of alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, where awkward love becomes eager love, right? So first, you know, they're so reticent. You know, it's John 17, They're getting their feet washed. They're all scared. Jesus is going to get crucified. Gethsemane comes next. It's going to be horrible. Only John is going to make it to the cross along with the Blessed Virgin Mother. But that awkwardness then suddenly over the course of the 50 days till Pentecost becomes this eager kind of love. And that eager kind of love um, shows itself in um Working quickly, so eager is the word for something that's speedy, right? So love moves very quickly, right? Jesus comes in, you know. It, you know, Mark's Gospel. The most popular word in the Gospel about Jesus is immediately, and immediately, and immediately Jesus acted, and immediately the person was healed, and immediately Jesus came over, and immediately they went over to the next town. There's this sense of this eagerness of the divine love curing the chaos. So you know um, this this awkward but eager love that is eager to maintain. Now, what's important there is, and we often forget this. Politically, people are trying to build a kingdom, and the world is filled with kingdom builders. And yet, because the word is passive, and it means you should guard what you've been given, it's very clear that this is the Lord's work. And so um, you're eager to take care of the things that you've been given. And what you want to do then is put everything back together as one. So eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And it's very interesting that this bond is the thing that makes everything fit together. And peace is the word for when the Lord puts everybody back in their proper place. So now you you sort of think about, you know, what should the church be like? What should the church be like? You know, the church should be this place where you don't have any enemies. And you come very gently, and you know that there's always more things that need to be done. And there are people who need to bump and nudge, and people who need to show maturity and authority. And yet, it's not meant to destroy people. It's meant to hold together all these very diverse people. And the way that this is done is by embracing and guarding and maintaining the gift that God has given. Right? And when you do that, you help you with gentle force put people back in the places where they belong. So children are respectful of parents, for example, or um, spouses love each other and put the other first. Right? or pastors are respectful of parishioners, or, 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 right? You can see how different this is from the world in which we live now, both inside and outside the church. So the church is ravaged by people who want to have a battle, who declare enemies, who want to break things apart, who want to split. Now, you should hear me very clearly. What I'm not saying to you is this is sort of like compromise at all costs. This is figure out what gift has been given to the church, Embrace that, use that, honor that as a tool to put everybody back where they belong, and of course, where you primarily belong is the children as a child of God. So you know this these just as three sentences, right? Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, or I'm turning the page now, um, eager to keep or eager to hold on to the God-produced oneness that binds us together, right? Or eager to hold on to the gift that's given. That's toleration. Toleration is when you hold on to what the gift that's been given. And then when people are outside that, you say, yeah, but that's not the way of Jesus, or that's not the way of the gift, or that's not the way of love, and that will destroy us. And if you, you all, and me too, I mean, if we all together can come back to that, you know, as a church. And, you know, we have to start with ourselves and we have to start with our two square blocks. You know, whether we can be influential beyond that, you know, who knows? Um, That's not the primary responsibility, although we do want to be uh, part of that, right? But uh, we want to go on in a toleration that is sanctified in truth. That's how Jesus talks, right? So I've given you the John 17 verse. They're not of the world. There's the otherworldly part. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so, um, you know, we need to come back to this. And this is where we're trying to go. There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one God. There is one Father of all, who is over and through and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that may be the last thing that um, we can kind of remember for today. If you think about everybody else in the world who are so different, and yet you're bound to them because of Christ, everybody has been given a different gift, and everybody has a different challenge. You're all different. If that can be woven together in a way that everybody pulls on the same end of the rope, you can have a spectacular church and a spectacular life and a spectacular family. If you don't, it is easy to fray. I mean, you know, it's very hard to, it's very hard to build something, but any idiot can break it apart. It takes a long time to find excellent, wonderful, loving things. It takes a long time to put that together, and that can be lost so easily. You can destroy your marriage. You can destroy your kids. You can destroy your friendships. You can destroy your church in under 60 seconds. It's easy. It's demonic. It's divisive. It's the way of the world. It's sinful. It takes a lifetime of care and great discipline this eagerness to do it, this gentle force, this love that is not self-directed. It takes a lifetime of care. I mean, to your last breath, you know, you know, you keep going. Prayer is war, right? You keep going. So um, I, I'm so hopeful given this morning. It was so it was so normal, right? It was the first time it felt normal in almost two years. It was fabulous. So keep going. Um, We'll see what happens next. Anyway, love you all. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks. See you next time.